Welcome to the Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and welcome to episode 129 with perhaps one of my favorite human beings in the world, uh, especially here in 2021, as she has given us her, uh, her personality, her insights, her expert opinion, resources, and just uh, energy into elevating our community and all the things that matter in so many, so many different ways. What an honor and a treat for me to be able to share my conversation with Michelle Bijong Kim. Uh, she is known all over LinkedIn and on Instagram and elsewhere uh, for, for so many insightful things to say about diversity, about equity, about inclusion, um, and all the things that matter so much and continue to matter so much in our community. Her uh, first book, The Wake Up, is available today as you hear my voice. It's gotten rave reviews. Uh, I've read it. I really enjoyed it. Um, and so I hope uh, after you listen to this that you head over to your favorite local uh, bookseller and buy the book and continue to support the work that Michelle uh, has done. Uh, special shout out to the MBA students at Dartmouth Tuck, uh, who I'll be speaking uh, to and, and sharing space with uh, later today uh, from Hanover, New Hampshire. So uh, shout out to Dartmouth. Uh, it's so great to be able to share this conversation. I really hope that you take away uh, not just the practical lessons that Michelle shares, but just be inspired uh, to use your voice, however you can find it, to use your platforms, to be able to uplift those uh, who matter. And so without further ado, uh, it is my distinct pleasure to share this conversation with Michelle Mijung Kim. Hey everybody, uh, welcome back to the Year Asian Americans. Hope you are staying safe. Hope you are staying healthy. We're recording this just after Labor Day, and according to many, many news reports, this Labor Day was worse than last Labor Day in terms of COVID, even though more than half of the country, or at least eligible folks, have gotten at least one dose of the vaccine. So maybe not quite as drastic as last year's message of stay home and don't see anybody, but please take care of yourselves, get vaccinated, and continue to um, think about others and, and practice hygiene especially as uh, many kids go back to school, universities are at this point wide open. And so anyway, the last year, year and a half for many, many of us has been extremely challenging from a pandemic perspective, but also from a frustration that we collectively felt that we really couldn't do as much as we wanted to about the issues that we care about. One of the people that I met in the last year and a half since I started doing this podcast and other community-based work is Michelle. We'll talk about her not name change, but sort of a homecoming to uh, her given Korean name, Bijong, as we talk about her story. But she's been really a, a great friend, a great source of not only information, but also inspiration in just the way that she has lived her life and to continue to um, advocate, not just for people who look like her, which is people who look like me, but for other people. She's got a new book coming out. It's called The Wake Up. Amazing book. Should be out by the time you hear this. Or pretty close to it. We love everything about Michelle's work and about Michelle and, and everything she stands for. So, and, and personally, this is, and I probably maybe shouldn't say this because every guest is special, but this one I've been waiting for a while. So Michelle, <laughs> how are you? I am honored to be here and I am also really excited about this conversation. So thank you for all your kind words. And I'm also a huge fan and just happy to be here. Yeah, you know, I think when I think about you and the work that you do, particularly just the exhausting, exhaustive work that we see on, on social media um, with obviously the, the scale that allows us to com you know, communicate with a lot of people, but also the stupidity and the vitriol that is out there in the world. I hope that you are, before anything, just figuring out ways to take care of yourself because you put yourself out there quite a bit not just in the volume of content, but also just you being you. And so how has it been the last, I mean, you've been doing this work for far beyond that, but I think the last 18 months has been particularly sort of interesting time when we think about the impact and then just the, the world that we live in. How have you been and, and how are you, what are you doing to take care of yourself before we talk about other, uh, other things? This is why I love you. <laughs> I think this is such a great starting place. Um, I, it's been, it's been tough. It's been a journey and a struggle and also uh, a real roller coaster in terms of both my physical health and mental health. 
And uh, I think particularly around social media, that's still a pretty new realm for me in terms of exposing the work that I've been doing without social media for a long time now in in that world that I'm not necessarily um, sure if I'm fully equipped <laughs> to handle. And um, truthfully, I gained a lot of new followers and folks who are excited to learn more about the work that I've been doing in the midst of the increasing anti-Asian hate violence, um, which I know is a pattern that we see in terms of DEI work, activism work, where there is this intense reactive interest in wanting to be involved in whatever capacity that people can be um, when there is a crisis or when there is really traumatic event or violence that happens. We saw that in 2020 um, when George Floyd was murdered and the influx of companies and individuals wanting to do that work. Um, and then we saw it again, especially for AAPI folks, when we started seeing anti-Asian hate violence. Um, so all that to say, I think this influx of interest in the work that I've been doing for a long time is quite new and also a little bit daunting. Um, and at the same time, it gives me a lot of hope, but also a lot of responsibility that, <laughs> that I feel I feel um, because of so many folks who are encouraging me and also are wanting to hear from me. So there's, there's a weird, um, I don't want to say pressure to keep up with the awareness building, but also reminding myself that the work is happening off of social media too. And that's perhaps for me, really important aspect of the work that I do. Um, and social media is a tool that I get to use to connect with people that I may never have been able to connect with. And part of the reason why I uh, try to be as honest as possible and at times be vulnerable is because I think, especially for people who look like us, and at least for me growing up, I didn't have any, I didn't have a lot of people who were um, doing work in this realm in the way that I, I'm doing, right? It's It was hard for me to find a queer Korean American person who's also an immigrant who's talking about mental health, right? Who is talking about um, challenge, being challenged with depression and anxiety or running a business on her own. So I feel like I am hoping that the more I can be my authentic self and be honest, that there are people who have been waiting for the image um, and also the stories that I get to share um, as something that could be grounding and anchoring for people. Um, so that's my relationship with social media. It's 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 a love-hate relationship <laughs> and it does impact my mental health quite a bit, especially when there is um, a lot of noise um, on social media. Yeah, you know, it's social media is an interesting phenomenon, probably an overplayed word, but you know, we almost need it, particularly for those of us who want more people to be mindful or at least knowledgeable about our viewpoints and the way that we see the world. It's also has, like you said, just some downsides to it. But it is also, I, I think, in a way, not the goal of what we do, but it is also an indication that our message does resonate. I, I remember it wasn't the fact that we were sort of celebrating it, but it was just sort of noting just that it was happening you and I were messaging each other as you were hitting the 10K mark. And I was like, this is cool because now you get the swipe up and you can share more resources and blah, blah, that blah. That was and cool. The swipe it, up it feature cool. is really cool. It still <laughs> is cool um, because I have it on the Dear Asian Americans account, not on my personal. So when I'm trying to share links on my personal, I'm like, crap, personal Jerry, not as cool as podcast Jerry. But, you know, I, I think, you know, people find you and, and they don't really, they see present day Michelle, right? They, they see present day Michelle, Mijong, just sharing resources, getting passionate about the issues that you care about and trying to amplify other people's voices. Let's take it all the way back and then to learn about how the Michelle that we know, the Mijong that we know today came to be. Tell us about your Korean American origin story. When did you come here? Under what circumstances? And how did you see yourself balancing the Korean and American parts of your identity in your first few years here? So I was born and raised in Seoul, Korea, and I was raised by my grandparents. My mom um, and my dad divorced when I was very young, and my dad moved to the States after he had to declare bankruptcy in South Korea. 
And uh, he came here as an undocumented immigrant, and he lived here undocumented for over a decade. And while he was doing that, um, I was living with my mom, who was working solo at the time. And uh, I was so I was raised by my grandparents, spent a lot of time with them. Um, and I think growing up with my grandparents in the same house had a lot of influence on the way that I think and the way that I perceive the world, because my grandpa was, and I haven't really talked about this anywhere, but my grandpa um, was a scholar and a philosopher and a professor in Korea. And he was also a you know very respected scholar and a activist in the Korea's liberation movement. So both my grandparents, both my grandparents survived through the Japanese occupation and they met um, during that time. And my grandpa taught me a lot of a lot, a lot about the values of social justice and freedom and um, just respect for human lives. So I think that really carried forward. I mean, I re remember him telling me every time you ride the bus, you have to thank the bus driver. And every time you're on the bus and if you see somebody who is older than you, you have to give up your seat. So things like that, right? So I feel like those types of lessons really were ingrained in me from a young age. And I didn't really relate that to the work that I do of social justice until later in life when I you know, started piecing things together. But I think that really was the beginning of my journey of thinking about things in this very human way and thinking it back to th linking it back to the teachings of my grandparents. Um, and I moved to the States when I was 13. Sometimes I say 12 because, you know, Korean age is different than American yeah. age. I feel like I, <laughs> my Korean age was 13, but if we're talking about American age, it was 12. I don't know. It's com complicated. And I came here right after 9-11. Um, no, right before I write 9-11. So it was only a matter of a few days that we were able to get our green cards. Um, and uh, we, uh, my sister and I came here to live with my dad because both my parents thought that we would get a better education in the U.S. and such a, you know, I think popular American immigrant story, right? Asian American immigrant story of chasing um, educational opportunities and better um job opportunities and all that American dream, chasing the American dream. Um, and when I came here, I settled in San Diego, which is where my dad was. And I, that was for me, the beginning of feeling like I don't necessarily belong here the way that I saw myself belonging in my home country. Um, and I think for me, I was so determined to fit in. And I write about that in the book because I think it's important for me to be honest about this. And I spent the vast majority of my middle school, high school years trying to be more white. I worked really, really hard to lose my accent. I hated being called my Korean name every new school year. So my roster on the roster, because my legal name remained Mi Jung, the teacher in the morning, uh, the new school year, they would go down the list of uh, names on the roster and they will all, always mispronounce my name, right? They will say Mai Jung, Mi Hung, Mi Jung. And I just, I just hated that experience of feeling othered and not being seen in the way that I wanted to be seen, which was an assimilated Asian American in this country. Um, and I would always have to say, oh, I go by Michelle and everybody else would chuckle. And that whole experience is something that repeated every single year. Well, many of us know, cause we know like, obviously whatever the alphabetized list order is. And so That's right. it was on, yeah, it was, it was also <laughs> first days and sub days when you're just like, oh, oh yes. shit, you know what? I'm here. Uh, before you butcher it, like I'm here. Yep. And so maybe if you're listening to this, maybe you, your, your parents, you know, I wasn't born Jerry, obviously, and maybe you still have your uh, given name from whatever country you call home or whatnot. But yeah, names, we'll, we'll come back to names. But yeah, it is, I think, a very resonant, painful, knee jerk reaction experience that many of us have had. You know, I, and I don't think it's obvious that you're, you weren't born as a Jerry. I don't think that would be obvious just because I've gotten so many messages from people who actually were never given a Korean name or an Asian name 
that because their parents thought that they would be bullied in school, that they were never even given the chance to have a name that's not um, uh, an English name. So I, I'm really grateful that I didn't change my name legally. And that there was a point that I was able to choose to change it to Michelle permanently when I got my citizenship when I was in college. And I made the deliberate choice to not change it legally, at least, even though I was going by Michelle by all accounts, because I thought about my grandpa, who's the one who gave me the name Bijung. And uh, I don't know, I felt even though I wasn't ready to embrace that name publicly, I wanted to leave that option for me to be able to come back to. And uh, I didn't, I don't know, in that moment, it felt like a betrayal to my grandpa. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. And, and what's sad about it is that at that time, my dad was encouraging me to change it um, because he changed it. He changed his uh, first name um, to an American name legally because of the inconvenience of not only his experience, but he just didn't want to be a constant inconvenience to other people, which was the saddest part for me to hear that he wanted to make things easy for the world for him to exist. And I think that is a very... Um, Sadly, a common experience, especially for folks in our parents' generation who have had to come here and struggle and, and survive by assimilating and accommodating the status quo. I, mean, I know we've talked a lot about, you know, as companies and schools have miraculously have shown interest in talking about Asian American things, particularly this past May, the concept of the perpetual foreigner always comes up. But I will also say that I think it's tough to be upset 100% because we collectively, the community, and particularly, as you said, early immigrants, have played into that role, have made it easy for people to assume that our names would be easy to pronounce, that we would not cause trouble, that, you know, particularly for folks maybe that don't immigrate here, but Koreans who just ask people to call them by their initials, just preemptively knowing that their names are a little bit more difficult to pronounce. And, and so I, I think that also is the thing that we collectively are dealing with in terms of one generation, or even half a generation shift in from we're guests here into FU, we belong here. And that I also think contributes to a lot of intergenerational challenges and conversations that don't happen. And if they do, it's awkward. Like, yeah. I don't talk about this stuff with my parents because <laughs> there's so many layers, right? Um, oh, including yeah. language. Yes. But for, for you, coming from that background, you mentioned that one of the reasons is, is for many, many uh, in our community, educational opportunity is the goal of immigration. So you did go down that path initially, or not initially, you did go down that path and mm -hmm. um, ended up at Cal. What did you want to be? What was sort of adolescent teenager Michelle wanting to be? <laughs> Oh, man. When I was in high school, I remember thinking all I wanted at the time was to get out of San Diego. I had a terrible relationship with my father. And I don't go into details in the book or and I won't go into that today. But being in an environment where I felt I couldn't be my full self. And I couldn't connect with my parent and I just wanted to get out. Um, that was the goal. I didn't know what I wanted to become when I grew up. I didn't know what career options there were. Um, I didn't grow up with the conversations around, you know, these are all the possible paths. My dad used to put um, an ROTC pamphlet. So it's like the joining of the army, right, um, on my desk whenever he got a chance, because he thought that that was the only way that I could afford to go to college. And he w really wanted me to become an accountant because that was a path that he saw as being um, the most stable and something that could translate well to me being financially um, independent because of the trauma that he's lived through in his life, right? Not being able to get uh, a, a, the stability and the financial success that he um, couldn't have, he wanted for me. And the only way that he knew how to do that was by encouraging me to join the army and by encouraging me to pursue a path that he saw as stable. 
Um, so I don't think that I knew really what I wanted to be because I didn't have a lot of possibilities that were presented to me as an option for me. I knew that I didn't want to be an accountant. <laughs> I knew that I didn't want to join the army. Um, so my way of fighting my way through that was getting good grades so that I can get scholarships um, and and not have to join the army to get um, get get into the college that I can afford. And I also, you know, had a lot of support in high school from different services and the programs um, at the time that were presented to people who are low income, which was me and my sister. And so I was just laser focused on getting out of town, get into college so that I could potentially have a future that I can imagine that's, you know, outside of the realm of possibility at the time. And when I got into Berkeley, I was able to access a lot of, you know, grant needs based grants and scholarships. And also I was a, a pretty active youth activist. I was doing a lot of organizing, causing good trouble, being called into the principal's office for causing, you know, doing protests and all of that. Um, and I thought that I would pursue a career perhaps in social justice work, um, being a full-time organizer, joining a nonprofit. And that continued through Berkeley. I um, my initial major was, uh, peace and conflict studies and sociology. So those were the, the fields that I explored until I realized, um, I needed to learn how to make money. My mom was still living uh, in Korea and you're laughing with it's, this is the honest truth was I realized that I needed money to be able to pay for the immigration paperwork that I needed to file for my mother. And I was working at the time. I worked all throughout college and I started really working and making money when I was 14 and a half. Uh, my first job in high school or middle school, is it? 14 and a half. Uh, was at Cold Stone. Shout out to everybody who's ever worked at Cold Stone. Um, and uh, in college, I, I realized that the path for me to go down in order to make enough money to bring my mom over um, was going to be really challenging if I were to go down the path of joining a nonprofit uh, because I had so many friends and mentors who went into those fields um, and they knew that that's not necessarily the easiest path for me to be able to bring my mom over here and get her settled um, and so on and so forth. So I decided to major in business, <laughs> which was a complete 180 from what I thought I would study in college. Um, and I continued to do student organizing throughout my uh, college days. And I remember my friend inviting me to a consulting company's info session. And I didn't know what consulting was as a field. I didn't know what they do, you know, this, this mystical world of consulting. But I went to the info session because they told me that there would be free food. And who doesn't want free food when you're in college? So I was like, okay, well, I'll go sit there and listen to their presentation if there is free pizza. Um, and then I learned about this field where I um, thought was really interesting in terms of being able to expose yourself to different businesses, different business problems. And my justification for going into that field was, well, let me get all the skills that I need to be able to run a successful um, social entrepreneurship in the future at some point. Um, so I, that's how I got into the corporate America. So it's a, it's been a journey. I, I think I um, never really imagined myself going into corporate America when I was in high school. Um, but that's the path that I ended up going down. And I actually, uh, I'm really grateful for that experience because I learned a ton through my first, um, few years of experience in corporate America and then in tech, uh, which is where I transitioned into after consulting and eventually starting my own company. That's a lot. I think even when we talk, I think nowadays about career, about, uh, the path that you've chosen or that you are doing now, it is based on the foundation of some privilege that we didn't have when you and I were in college, that our parents didn't have, that so many newer immigrants, so many not immigrants too, who, who aren't put into certain situations that don't have, right? Yeah. Like the voice is a privilege, rejection is a privilege. And and I think, you know, when when people look at your resume on paper, they'll say, like, oh, she 
went into this space and uh, you talk about this in your book, sort of not only are we neither here nor there being Korean American, but you are a former corporate person turned activist. And now both sides are calling you not good enough because you've danced with the enemy, if you will, in, in from both perspectives and not exactly in the same sort of timeline or, or sphere, but I was in the same industry or same field. And I can say the same thing, right? I learned a lot, but I'd never want to do it again because <laughs> it just wasn't pleasant. But also at the same time, it's yeah. helped me realize a whole lot of things that defines and grounds a lot of the way that I see the world in, I guess, more sort of in the avoidance perspective of that's what capitalism is working towards, or that's how they value productivity or monetary value. And what do I want to do? So we don't have to do that to have uh, dignity or even money. So you gave us some hints, you know, you were a troublemaker, you, you talked about a sort of a, a turning point when you were much younger in your life, but you, as, as many of us struggle with sort of sometimes biting the bullet into what we want to do to what we have to do for your mother, for your family, for livelihood, went to Cal, went to the consulting company, then went into tech. What convinced you or when did you know you were ready to say, hey, this has been fun, but I want to do something on my own? And how much struggle did you have with that knowing? And we all do. If you stay down that path, stability is hell of a, uh, a smokescreen or a bait and switch where it's really not. You can fire you today for no reason whatsoever. Did you prepare to leave? Was it a sudden incident? Tell us about that. Yeah, I share more details in the book, so I won't go into too much of the details of the incident. Buy the book. Buy the book. Buy the book. Please pre-order <laughs> the book um, or buy the book by the time you hear this. Um, and I, I, I don't want to share too many details because I think some of the details um, are not mine to share. Um, so the reason, and, and when you ask, were you prepared to leave? The short answer is no. I had always thought about starting my own venture at some point, but when I decided to quit my last tech job, it wasn't necessarily something that I had planned on. Um, I, my, one of my closest friends at the time, um, and who still is a great friend of mine, when we worked together at this tech company, um, she unfortunately experienced a lot of trauma and um, it led to her quitting and me quitting with her to support. And the sudden decision to quit without necessarily having a plan or safety net was an incredibly scary thing for me. Um, given not only, you know, the uncertainty of the future, but because of my past traumas around not having enough money and growing up low income and seeing what's happened to my parents. And so I, but I did it because the alternative of staying at a company that caused harm um, and there was no accountability and me being part of that environment was even scarier. And so I decided to give that stability, the lure of stability and paychecks and health insurance all behind to, um, to trust that there will be a path for me as long as I am staying in integrity and alignment with my values. And I, I say this not to glorify what happened because I, I wish that that incident never happened. Um, but to illustrate that sometimes what I've learned in this work is sometimes there is real material cost to pursuing what you believe to be the just thing to do. And I wish that marginalized people didn't have to risk so much or to give up so much in order to pursue what they believe to be the right thing to do. Um, so it's more of a reflection on the way that our society is set up, the way that our systems are set up, and also the fact that when we quit our jobs that are toxic, that we are left with so little safety net that, you know, we don't have, we, we can't access healthcare when we are sick, when we are not employed, unless we are paying, you know, hundreds of dollars every month, which I can talk about for hours. My, um, my journey in the healthcare system. Um, so that was really the impetus for me quitting. 
and trying to start something with my friend who I quit with. And we both knew that there was a huge gap in the way that corporate America and tech were talking about diversity and equity and inclusion. Um, and we wanted to do something about it. And I knew how to facilitate from my organizing days and through my work. And I really wanted to bring um, work that was grounded in social justice and kind of go back to the roots that I um, held dear to my heart rather than modeling after sort of the corporatized, sanitized, whitewashed version of quote-unquote diversity and inclusion that was so rampant and still is in corporate America today. Yeah, I think it's um, perhaps there are people listening who in the last 18 months has really exacerbated pain that corporate people feel when it comes to the way that they're treated, that they're valued. Unfortunately, in America, there's so much tied to employment, namely being healthcare, that makes it really difficult. Um, it doesn't make it as easy for people to do what they want to do or to take a risk. And so, you know, necessity or survival or I can't right now, timing becomes a really, really interesting thing. People who know my story uh, or the timing of it think it was extremely irresponsible or reckless at best to do it when you have two kids um, and shortly after graduate school. I agree. My wife will certainly agree. But I, I do think, you know, I, I remember I'm remembering a passage in your book, your why. And your why is very, very, very simple. And you said, because you don't want people to die. Mm -hmm. And this is this conversation isn't to corral you to go quit your jobs tomorrow and, and you know, go pick it somewhere. But your journey has been driven and continues to be motivated by taking care of people you care about. And so how has that been? You know, I think even just objectively or financially speaking, like when you leave that world, whatever the circumstance, we sort of track like, okay, was it the right decision? Mm -hmm. Am I providing for the people that I care about, including myself primarily from a comfort and sort of, you know, livability perspective? What were your thoughts in those early years of moments of holy crap, moments of maybe I should go look for another job, which I've done multiple times in the last two years? When did you finally know that this was all in, not only from a heart perspective, but that the market saw that there was a business need for a Michelle in the world? Oh, I, you know, when I quit the job and I had no idea how I was going to start making money to pay the bills. And I was looking at my savings account probably on a daily basis to just feel okay that I'm going to be okay for the next couple of months. Um, and knowing that at the time my mom was already here. So I was, you know, financially providing for her. And, um, you know, there were, there were things that I was responsible for financially. Um, so I was doing all kinds of things. So even before I started Awaken with uh, my friend, my co-founder, I was doing career coaching. I was doing OKR consulting. So I was using everything that I learned and everything that I knew that was marketable to make ends meet. And I frankly had a lot of fun doing a lot of different things and building. I was lost and I was worried about the future, but at the same time, Having been, um, having only known what it's like to work under management um, and within the contract of, within the confines of corporate America and organizations that I served, I just really enjoy the freedom. Um, I remember one day walking outside in the middle of the day in one afternoon, and I just walked around and had a cup of coffee and I looked at the sky. And I remember thinking, wow, this is what freedom feels like <laughs> to actually have control over my time, to have control over my choices and the decisions and the way that I spend my time. Um, what a foreign concept for somebody who spent years in the workplace, um, being nervous and anxious about not meeting certain deadlines or, you know, not being um, available on chat when my manager uh, <laughs> chats me or, you know, not having any control over the types of things that I wanted to, I wanted to do. So the beginning years, it was really tough. Um, and I was working, of course, 
just ridiculous number of hours a week. But at the same time, there was so much empowerment that I felt that all of these hours that I'm spending isn't for somebody else. It's for me. And it's something that I think I found a lot of joy in. Um, and it luckily awakened started getting a lot of traction, um, about six months to a year after we launched officially. Um, and I really have a lot of women of color to thank who were in positions of power, who saw an opportunity for them to try out something that felt different for them, um, compared to a lot of the programs that were out there that felt, um, you know, superficial and surface level. So a lot of folks ended up taking risks by trusting us and taking that leap of faith, which is what really propelled us to be able to get in there um, to institutions that I never thought I'd be able to work with. And that's sort of snowballed into getting a lot of referrals and recommendations and kind of overnight, I don't say overnight because it wasn't overnight, <laughs> but over the years being able to um, build a really solid network of people who were champions of the work that we were doing. Ever since COVID, how has your viewpoint of the work that you do changed for better and perhaps more challenging, daunting? I don't know if the perception that I have about the work that I've been doing changed necessarily, or if it's me that's changing constantly. Um, because I believe in the work that we do so much in terms of what I've experienced in that space and what I'm trying to undo and what I'm trying to do to reduce harm in these spaces that are um, incredibly difficult and challenging for marginalized people. Um, I think I've gone through a lot of mental health struggles as a business owner, as um, a marginalized person myself existing in this world. And I started to think more seriously about rest and joy, which are two things that I'm very, very bad at. Um, I think partly because I've never been taught how to chase joy and to allow myself rest. Um, and I think a lot of folks who are immigrants, who are people of color, who are women of color, who grew up in, you know, who grew up with parents who exemplified that throughout their entire lives can probably relate. But at some point in my entrepreneurship career, I started to ask myself, what is it that I really want? And why don't I feel okay dreaming in that way? So I remember having this conversation with my therapist where, you know, I was really struggling to define joy in my life and to really identify what brings me joy. And I remember talking to her about, you know, I feel really proud of the work that I'm doing. So whenever we get um, uh, a referral or recommendation or an incredible review from a marginalized person who experienced our programs, I feel a lot of joy and I feel a lot of pride. And she challenged me to distinguish between, um, distinguish joy from a sense of fulfillment. And I think I was conflating them a lot. I think that there are experiences that made me feel super fulfilled and proud, but not necessarily something that made me feel joy, where I feel light, the levity that comes with joy and the, um, feeling of carefreeness. And I think that is a foreign concept to a lot of people like me who are used to laboring, who are used to being resilient and overcoming. I think those are all the things that we've been taught how to do really, really well, because by design, we have to in order to survive. Um, and so that's been the, the biggest shift, I think, in terms of the kind of work that I do has been arduous. Um, and so deeply um, activating different types of traumas all the time because I am constantly surrounded by systems and people and cultures that are reminding me of the harm and the trauma that I experience and the other people are experiencing all the time. And it was hard for me to actually identify um, how can I do this work from a place of 
abundance from a place of joy, from a place of caring for myself as well as other people, um, which has been challenging because that's not how a lot of people define the work of social justice or DEI. And um, which leads me to, you know, telling people nowadays that I've actually begun a couple of years ago, the process of transitioning the business and winding this down. Um, and that, which is also a really scary place because I spent a lot of years building this into um, what it is today. And for me to sort of close that chapter, um, which for me is a huge, uh, was a revelation in terms of the way that I think about this book, right? A lot of people, and you've asked me this, where, you know, what does this book represent for you? What does success look like? And for a long time, I thought this book would be a, a launching pad, right? Into something exciting, into, um, I don't know, different opportunities. You know, this book could lead to a lot of different types of, um, you know, opportunities that I didn't have before, or it's going to be a beginning of a new chapter in my life. And I realized during the writing process and a few weeks ago, um, when I was really thinking about this book and what this represents for me, more than it being an opening to a new chapter of my life, it feels like an epilogue where I am sharing all of the lessons learned that have guided me through this work. And I am putting all of that into a book where it is much more accessible so that people don't necessarily need to access me constantly in order to get those lessons. And, and I, whenever I talk to people who are like book marketers or people who are, who have launched books before and created successful consulting businesses and platforms out of it, um, I find myself energetically feeling like, you know, it's hard for me to equate this book success with like more speaking engagements or more consulting projects because I feel exhausted by that thought. <laughs> and I think in many ways, I want people to, I, I think I would feel so grateful if people can pick up this book and really find value in it where they get to reflect alongside my reflection and to be able to apply this at scale in a way that I as one person or Awaken as a company could do um, in a limited way, right? So for me, it's truly accessible information sharing and being honest about the challenges that I faced and my shortcomings and wanting for people to learn from that and to resonate. Um, and if they find themselves in my stories, as cliche and idealistic and naive as that sounds is really what I'm hoping for. Um, because I, you know, I, I don't know if I um, see this as something that conventionally uh, people would think of as a, you know, entryway into more speaking engagements, more consulting engagements, because uh, I feel like I've done that <laughs> and I'm tired. <laughs> that's, a, that's not the answer that I was expecting to hear, to be honest with you, because I think I, I, I've gotten to know you for the last, you know, year and a half and sort of seeing your progression. And I know you've been through a lot of things personally and continue to do so. And with the, um, and we talked about social media earlier in the, in the conversation. So what is then the Mi Jung Kim legacy that you want to leave? And how does the work that you're doing today get there? It, cause again, it, it, to me, it seems like you are, you have written the book that you are doing more work on, on social media on, in ways that help get the message out there in a more, I hate this word, but I'll say it, in, in a scalable way um, where you're not having to physically consult one-on-one or even stand in front of a room full of people. And for all of us who are in the content creation knowledge world, that is a part of the evolution so that you're not necessarily, and I guess I could, I'll say it, like you're making money in your sleep too, right? Like you're impacting in your sleep. You're, you're trying to make nonlinear the impact that you have. But, but I'm curious from you, sort of, this work is exhausting. Not, again, in, in two factors, time and energy. It, it does take a lot out of you. What is, what is the legacy for you? And what do you want people to remember you for years and years and years from now? 
Oh, that's a big question, Jerry. <laughs> it is. I think my legacy is always going to change. And I don't want there to be just one thing that people uh, see as my legacy. So I, when I was contemplating what I want to do with my business, um, and I was really struggling with my mental health, but also holding on to the business that I built after pouring so much heart and soul into it. Um, my friend reminded me just so gently that I want you to know that Awaken is not going to be your only legacy. It is one of many legacies, but it's not going to be the only thing. So if you need to let this go, you can. And I think hearing that and giving myself permission to evolve and to really think about the things that allow me to experience joy and freedom and rest, um, when it's incredibly difficult to do that, when you get caught in the wheel of um, building you know, a business that needs to run, that needs to pay the bills, that needs to pay other people, you are responsible for not only yourself, but a whole um, collective of people who are incredibly talented. And so then you end up having to go bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think that is the unfortunate um, cycle of capitalism that we get stuck in, right? That it's it's hard to survive unless you are continuing to grind. And so I found myself being stuck in that wheel yet again, even though I chose to build it, um, which is why I decided that I wanted to divest from that process for both my mental health and for, you know, my values alignment purposes. So this book, along with the work that I've done with Awaken are both my legacies. And just because I am not doing, you know, B2B corporate workshops um, on equity education doesn't mean that the work stops, right? I've, I've been involved in um, local orgs and doing work on the, uh, on the ground um, ever since I was in high school. And I never really stopped doing that, even when I was working in corporate America or tech. And so I think there are so many ways that we can create change in and outside of different systems. And I, I see this phase of my life as time that I get to allow myself to explore. And it's a really daunting Thing, and I have a lot of anxiety about it. And maybe I will come back to being able to work with organizations again when I feel that is something that gives me joy again. Um, but right now, there's a huge blank space and a question mark in terms of where I want to continue my work and what focus. Um, but I want that to be a little bit more exploratory. And I'm allowing myself to have a little bit of uncertainty that I, I think is not something that a lot of people are afforded. So immense privilege of being able to do this and to explore what um, helps me recover from some of the experiences that I've been through. But that's kind of where I am. No, thanks for sharing that. I, what I admire about you, amongst many other things that I admire you for, Michelle, is sort of authenticity. And not, you know, I, I say that word a lot, and but I really think how you inspire far beyond the actual content that you share is just living your life the way that you see fit. It takes a tremendous amount of unlearning and relearning for us immigrant kids coming from traditional expectations of Korean households of multi-generations for us to be able to prioritize ourselves and to make decisions without. I know there's a lot of toxic talk of just about like, don't care about what other people think. I think it's actually, especially when it comes from people you care about, like your parents and family, you can't like go to zero. But I think it's prioritizing your health and your happiness over their opinion, which is really, really nuanced and complex. So I, I, I take that away from even this conversation. I think as somebody too, who uh, makes a part of my income on corporate speaking in the process of writing a book, interviewing really amazing Asian Americans through this project and through other stuff that I'm working on. It's always interesting sort of to think about the business side of things and to go, go, go and to grow, grow, grow. And where does it? And I, I think it's really also hard. I, I think you 
have done it better than most, but to really mix purpose with passion, but also profit and to make it sustainable. I know in a lot of the circles that we belong, some people are allergic to money or think that people who do the work that you do should be allergic to money. Money is not evil. Money is a tool that allows us to do the work that we do. And in fighting systems that are driven and controlled by money, sometimes you do have to pick up the tools of tools of the trade to to play the game. But I also don't think that people who dedicate themselves and their lives to bringing other people out of difficult situations should, by default, be in difficult situations all the time. And so, yeah, this is this, this is a fun conversation. I mean, one, I wanted to share your work. You are at Michelle Kim Kim on Instagram. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you this, because I think it's really important that we talked about it before. Right before you share the cover of your book, you shared an extremely heartfelt, open, vulnerable, and extremely resonant post about readopting your given Korean name, Bijong, as the name that you'd like to be known by. I'll say a joke that there's probably way too many Michelle Kims in the universe because <laughs> Korean parents. I mean, I know you picked Michelle for yourself, but uh, haphazardly, yes. There's a lot of there's a lot of Michelle Kims out there, but um, how, why, and I guess more importantly, why? Yeah. Well, you asked me about legacy, um, and I thought about this book as being one of those legacies that I want to leave behind, and I just. It just didn't feel right for me to publish something using a name that I adopted in order to survive and to assimilate while erasing a whole part of me that I find to be so important for me to remember. Um, And throughout my writing journey, I ended up writing more about my experience growing up in this country and being Asian American than I originally had planned in this book. And I felt like it was it was the type of legacy that I wanted to leave where I get to be as honest as possible about who I am. Um, and I couldn't do that without also embracing the part of me that I erased on purpose for a long time. And I dedicated this book to my grandfather. Um, And uh, part of the reason is because I really feel like I am continuing his legacy as well. That this is not just my legacy that I'm building from scratch, but somehow I am also continuing the work that my grandpa started that he taught in me. Um, And he uh, he was writing a book. Uh, when I when I was growing up with him. And I remember seeing a stack of paper that he wrote by hand, his manuscript. And he wrote using his, you know, pen, re- literally, you know, pen on paper. Um, and it was a stack of papers that I saw growing up him working on. Before he was able to publish, he passed away, unfortunately. So he never got to publish his work. And uh, um, I never thought that I would be the one to publish a book. And it feels like I am doing this with him and in his legacy in honor of the work that he never got to complete. And how would I do that without also embracing the name that he gifted me? Um, So that was all the reasons why I decided to do it. And, you know, heartbreakingly, when I showed the cover of the book to my parents separately, they both had the same reaction of questioning whether this was the smart choice to do. Um, They both said, are you sure you want to use your Korean name? You know how people could be biased because, you know, there are lots of studies that show if you're using um, foreign names, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, or perceived to be a foreign name, Asian sounding name, Muslim sounding name, black sounding name, you're less likely to have the same opportunity as you would with an American sounding name or English sounding name, anglicized names. And they, you know, out of their desire to protect me and to make sure that I could be successful, they, um, were really concerned about my choice. 
And um, they even said, you know, maybe you can just use M as a middle name and just use the initial instead of your full Korean name. So it was a conversation that I found really interesting and helping them unlearn and helping them to believe that I can exist in this world in this way without, hopefully without jeopardizing my success. But even if that's the case, that this is the way that I want to do it. Um, So it was an interesting conversation that I had with my parents about this name. And I feel really grateful that I get to do this um, and I get to reclaim this identity during this time. That's so beautiful. There's nothing but good intent from our parents' perspective. My dad, I don't know how much, how how serious he was, but, um, you know, our Korean name is one, pronounced more like the number one. Um, But when you spell it W-O-N, it's drawn out, so it's one. And... um, (laughs) At some point, I don't, again, I don't know how serious he was, but he's like, hey guys, why don't we legally change the name of our spelling of our last name to like Vaughn, but with the W? So they'll say one and we'll know it's one, but then they'll be confused when we show up because it's not an Asian Korean sounding name. And like that stuff, it still bothers me still because I think, uh, and I have friends actually who uh Chinese family whose last name is Wang literally changed their last name to King. It means the same, but they're the King family. And so on paper, they don't, you know, whatever discrimination doesn't happen, at least on paper. And so what, what I think is also another conversation that um, I hope we continue to have both publicly and, and within our own families is we actually might be, I don't want to say more proud of our heritage, but we are, uh, less likely to shy away from that defining the way that that ha- having that identity, our Korean identity, whatever culture and um, ethnicity you are proud of, being okay with the good and the bad that comes from just being us. It's hard. And for, for those of you perhaps not too familiar with Korean history, when Michelle talks about her grandparents, when I talk about my grandparents, our grandparents were born into Japanese occupation. They were born without legal Korean names, without the ability to learn Korean, our culture, our language, our history in school for the first 15, 20 years of their lives. And so when we, when we even think about them telling us uh, and our parents who were shaped by them to shy away from being so upfront with your Koreanness when you're trying to be American, it's much deeper than just this, you know, uh, assimilation conversation that I think so many of us, uh, you know, privileged, uh, Asian American kids have these days because they know what it means to live without identity. And yet they did it for survival, you know, saluting soldiers and playing along and going through stuff for survival and from them for us, they just want us to survive. And so if that means going by Jerry, going by Michelle, who cares? Live with it. It's not important. Um, and yet here we are with the lessons that we've learned and, you know, standing on on the shoulders of their sacrifice and their love and care saying, no, like it is important that people know the name I was born with and what it means. I, I, I shared something, you know, on, on LinkedIn earlier this year, like maybe I want to go back by Chonghun. And one, uh, Chonghun is a lot more hard to pronounce for non-Korean folks than Mijong is. But it's complicated, right? Because it's also Michelle Kim's a brand now. Jerry Wan is a brand and people know you <laughs> by that. And, you know, because we have chosen the path to uh, be in business for ourselves, it's not just a matter of doing what we want because we know it's the right thing to do. And so I, I really, really want to encourage people who are listening to do two things. One is free. The other is not. I guess the two can be free too. One, go follow Michelle on Instagram on LinkedIn and wherever else you can find her. She is one of the, we, I guess we collectively are very few, extremely loud ass Asian Americans on LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> yes. And, and I think for many of our listeners who are still corporately employed, it's important for them to hear our voice, um, especially on a platform where we've been encouraged or even told bluntly to silence ourselves and to whitewash everything that we say because it's not proper or professional, as they say. 
to have these thoughts or even vocalize it. And two, get the book. Wake up. Love love the the theme of awaken, being awoken to new realizations and the work that needs to be done. Lots to celebrate in your life too. I'll leave it at that. And so thank you for sharing your 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 time uh, and course. your story with us. Last, as we always do, leave us with any words of inspiration, uh, perspective um, as we close out the show and help us uh, finish out the show by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. So thank you for plugging all the things for me. You're the best champion and advocate one can ask for. Um, I think I just want to respond to what you said about our grandparents and that generation of folks who survived colonization and so much violence and war. And I remember my grandpa telling me about his experience going to school um, under the Japanese army rule, where whenever he was caught speaking Korean, he was beaten. And uh, we were, as our, our people and our ancestors were literally robbed of their heritage and culture and customs and language and identity. And so I understand the concern that comes with my taking risks in the world from the perspective of my grandparents, from the perspective of my parents, because they just want safety for me. And I think my job is to help them to believe that this is the way that we start to heal. That by us reclaiming the parts that were forced out of us and that were erased and violated out of us, that we get to start claiming our agency and start the healing process. And so I really see the work that I'm doing as not only something that I want to pay forward to our future generations, but work that could heal intergenerationally. And I am in the process of really taking the work of healing myself seriously from the harm that I've experienced. And I want my parents and my ancestors who are looking down on me to feel a little bit closer to their healing as well. Um, and I think that we have so much power to be able to create conditions and systems and the world in which we don't have to make these types of bullshit sacrifice to survive. And that's really the goal of my work and the work of so many of us, including you, is how do we create the condition in which we do not have to make sacrifices that um, are constantly asking us to expense us and our own safety and our own identity and our own authenticity. Um, and I believe that we can do that by doing the work of transforming ourselves before we set out to transforming the world so that we can be a part of this movement together in a very principled and caring and healing way. So I'll leave it at that. And I'm so thankful uh, for this invite. And it's always such an honor to be in conversation with you, Jerry. Thank you. Continue being you. I speak not just for myself, but for countless other people. And perhaps unfair to levy all this burden on you as, as a final saying, but you mean so much more than I think you realize to so many people who oh, do the work that you do. No, I'm, I'm serious. To, to do the work that you, to other people who are, are new to the work, to people who uh, are perhaps in places in their lives that you once were, uh, whether it is through the multitude of your identities or your professional career path or people who know that they were destined to be greater than being really good at Excel and PowerPoint. And, and so I just want to say thanks. You, you've been a great friend. You've been extremely approachable. You've been, I know that you uh, have learned as I have too, to prioritize our own health and just even rest with no excuse whatsoever. We rescheduled this interview because both you and I were having crappy weeks last week and yep. that's okay. And, and you uh, also bring others along in uh, shining a light in providing opportunity. I hope to put, I will put good universe energy out there and say, I will see you in Austin next March. Um, <laughs> yeah. Hopefully in person, if Texas gets their crap together or doesn't lose their crap, but so much excitement in the future. 
please get the book. I did say there was a free-ish option. It'll be at libraries. Ask your librarian. If you are in the nonprofit space or in the academic space, buy bundles, share it out, buy it for whatever holiday you celebrate or don't coming up. And so, Michelle, thanks so much for the work that you do, for being a good friend, and really for me, challenging the notion of what a fellow Korean American friend, particularly a woman, can do and be having to unlearn so much of what I was taught. Mm. And then you've done that for me. So thank you so much. And um, congratulations on your book and all the exciting things that are happening in your life. And uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Michelle uh, for making time for this conversation. I'm so proud of the work that she does, the community that she has built, um, and just the the person that uh, she continues to be, um, inspiring me personally and, and and so many people in our lives. Um, and so thank you for the work that you do, that you continue to do. Um, it's no secret now. Congratulations on your uh, wedding and your marriage. And all the best to you, Michelle, as you continue uh, to challenge us to challenge ourselves and to our community and our country into becoming uh, a better version for all of us. Look for her on Instagram at Michelle Kim Kim. Uh, she is Michelle uh, Bijong Kim on Facebook and on LinkedIn and where else you can, or wherever else you can find her. And again, her, her book uh, is available now, The Wake Up. Uh, so I encourage you to buy it, to listen to it, to read it, to share it with a friend, to buy it for some friends or for your school or for your workplaces. Um, really, really highly encourage you to do so. You can find us on Instagram at Dear Asian Americans or me personally at JerryJ1. You can find us on the internet at DearAsianAmericans.com. Uh, be sure to subscribe if you have not. We're on Apple, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you can find podcasts. And I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can visit me on my website, JerryJ1.com and email me at hello at jerryone.com and would love to engage with you. Thank you so much again to Michelle for making time for this. Hope you are continuing to stay safe and healthy and happy wherever you are. This has been your host, Jerry Wan, and thank you for listening to Dear Asian Americans.